This is a recording of 1956, Hungary's Workers Rise Up, at Ideas for Freedom 2019, with John Cunningham. Thank you very much. Um, uh, just a, a little bit, uh, not greatly in favour of talking about myself before I talk, I talk, but I lived in Hungary for nine years, from 1991 to 2000. So I arrived just after the changes. Um, I was able at one time to speak Hungarian, more or less, but I've sort of lost it now because I haven't uh, practiced it. Um, while I was there, I immersed myself in uh, learning about Hungarian history, a fascinating topic, and I wrote uh, a lot about Hungarian cinema. I've written two books on Hungarian cinema, which I, I won't bore you with that. Um, but uh, I think the first question to ask is why talk about 1956 now? Um, first point to make, it was the strongest and most militant challenge with the probable pro exception of the rise of Solidarność in Poland. It was the most militant challenge to Stalinism in Stalinism, Stalinism's entire history. In terms of the general strike weapon by the working class and the development of workers' councils, it was probably the most developed and extensive uh, use of these tactics, these strategies, in the entire history of the proletariat. And I'll try and... That sounds like a wild claim, but I think it's actually justified. If you look at the general strikes that occurred in Hungary in 56, if you look at the development of the workers' councils in 56, you actually cannot find any equal parallel anywhere in the proletarian history. That's my opinion. I'll try and argue that point later. Much more important, it's absolutely necessary, I think, to reclaim 1956 as part of our history. 1956, possibly more than any political uh, topic post-Second World War, has been kicked around so much by people who have antithetical political agendas to that of the working class movement, to that of socialism, that there is a crying need to rediscover 1956 as part of our heritage, as part of the working class history, and as part of revolutionary socialism. I'll try and illustrate my point with just one item. Um, there was, until relatively recently in Hungary, an organisation dedicated to unearthing and digging up documents and writing histories about the events of 1956. Um, it's, I think, within the last few weeks been disbanded by Viktor Orban, surprise, surprise, and, in, and incorporated into his very nationalistically tinged historical organisation, which he calls Veritas in an act of duplicity and... Uh, barefaced lying. Um, now, this organisation I mentioned, the 56 Archive Organisation, brought out a book, a very thick book, I didn't, I didn't bring it with me because it's that big, <clears throat> which contains 180 documents from 1956. There is not one document in that collection that mentions anything about the Workers' Councils. Nothing. You can read histories by Hungarian historians and other historians about 1956, the Workers' Council 
actually hardly get any mention at all. Often, if they are mentioned, it's just in passing. One big exception, and this is the book I recommend anybody to read if you can get it. It's out of, been out of print for years. Hungry 1956 by Bill Lomax. It's, uh, it came out in the 70s, early 70s. It's still the best book, in my opinion, on 56. So I want to make my account of uh, 56 centre on the workers' councils. But what I also want to do um, is to, first of all, go back to 1953. I don't intend to troll through the entire history of the 20th century. We go back to 1923 and the death of Stalin, and which I think in many ways is one of the events that kicks off a whole momentum of events that leads up to 1956. I want to look at the role of students and journalists in 56, and also talk about, I think this is important, the instability of Stalinism. We have an idea often of Stalinism being this sort of rock-hard edifice that is unyielding, unbreakable, invulnerable, but it isn't. I want to argue that actually one of the chief characteristics of Stalinism, particularly as it manifests itself in Central and Eastern Europe, is political instability of the first order. Also, I'm going to mention the revolt of the writers and intellectuals in the Patefi circle. Uh, also, uh, and I, want, I want to mention really in passing, because it's not a subject I've stood in any detail, but one, another element that is often missed about 1956 in the Akashri is what was going on south of the border in Yugoslavia with the, uh, with the growing influence of Tito, his growing uh, independence and defiance often of Moscow and the way in which the Stalinists in Central and Eastern Europe were, not to put too fine a point on it, shitting themselves that uh, other countries in Central and Eastern Europe would actually follow the example of Yugoslavia and become a little bit more in independent. <clears throat> I want to reiterate the point that, um, about the centrality of the workers' councils. And finally, at the very end of my talk, if I've got enough time, I'm going to say a little bit about the effect of 1956 on the communist parties around the world and um, how perceptions of 1956 have been changed and manipulated, particularly in Hungary. Okay. Stalin dies in 1953. Hooray. There's already much instability and unrest in Central and Eastern Europe in the countries that are usually referred to as the satellite states or the Warsaw Pact countries or whatever. Wages are miserable. Housing is terrible. There's a lack of consumer goods. There's a lack of basic freedoms. Everything basically about living in a place like Hungary in the 1950s is shit. This is what people have said to me when I, when I lived in Hungary. You couldn't even go to the cinema and watch a decent film because all you, had, all you had was Soviet socialist realist crap. The only reason why you go to cinema was to keep warm or snog with your partner on the back seat or whatever. You didn't go to watch the films. The drive towards heavy industry, particularly in a country like Hungary, which is not that well endowed with uh, natural resource like oil, iron ore, etc. Um, the drive towards heavy industry meant that the working class all over Central and Eastern Europe paid a heavy price for 
uh, Stalinist policies, obviously without stating the uh, blindingly obvious, dictated from Moscow. Stalin's death exposed deep divisions in the ruling bureaucracies. Um, there were really hardline Stalinists who wanted to continue this grinding policy. There were people who were intelligent enough to see that you just couldn't maintain the, this kind of pressure on people day after day, month after month, year after year after year. People trudging off to work, long hours at miserable rates of pay, going back to a cramped flat, or no flat at all. A lot of workers lived in dormitories, and they were pretty bloody awful. Um, with little to buy in the shops, on odd occasions rationing was actually introduced, and there were Stalin's death promised some kind of change. This promise of change caused various explosions of unrest in East Germany. Uh, demonstrations in East Berlin went on strike. Uh, there were demonstrations in East Berlin, strikes in many places, strikes in Pilsen, in Czechoslovakia, and some strikes also in Hungary. In response to this, the Stalinist authorities introduced some changes. Egypt, for example, in East Germany, wage rate cuts, which were planned uh, and which provoked the strikes, the, the wages were restored to their previous level, and there were numerous changes in personnel tactic often used by Stalin, Stalinists, uh, not just in Central and Eastern Europe, but elsewhere. Got a problem, change the head of the party. Got a problem with the economy, change the economics minister, and so on and so on. So there were numerous changes in personnel. For example, in Hungary, for our purposes, the hardline Stalinist uh, Matyas Rakoshi. Uh, was replaced in 1953 by the more popular Imre Noj, and we'll come across Noj and Rakoshi later. Um, you've probably seen pictures of Matyash Rakoshi, he's a rather sort of portly man, totally bald. Uh, some people in Hungary at the time nicknamed him Arsehead, <laughs> uh, which probably wasn't just a ref reference to his appearance either. Uh, but he was replaced in 1953 by Imre Noj, who was a, a long-standing Bolshevik, uh, who had been an expert in agriculture in the Comintern, and had, unlike most of the leadership in the Hungarian Communist Party, was actually from the countryside. He had a good reputation with uh, land workers, small-scale farmers, peasants, etc. And he was a popular choice for leader. There were a lot of problems with Imre Noj, though, and I'll come to those in a few minutes. Um, Moscow always took a great interest in what was happening in Hungary because it was a borderline country with Yugoslavia and it was a borderline country with the West. It had a common border with Austria. So it was an important place. And they were, uh, they were aware of the, um, the growing unrest amongst the masses of Central Eastern Europe and they ordered an easing of the pressure on the workers and farmers and keeping also an eye on what was happening in Yugoslavia, where Tito's somewhat idiosyncratic and less pressurised version of Stalinism proved attractive to many in Hungary, Poland and elsewhere. The last thing that Moscow wanted was the Titoist virus, as it was often referred to, often also referred to as Tito-Trotskyist virus. <laughs> There's absolutely no connection whatsoever between 
Tito and Trotsky. Uh, The last thing they wanted was this virus to spread. Now, although there was very much that was illusory about Tito, he was a Stalinist, um, and could be quite vicious in his own way, um, was after the at the very end of the Second World War, he was responsible for a number of atrocities, including murdering about 120,000 Hungarians, ethnic Hungarians, in Vojvodina, the area, area bordering. Uh, so was that mine? No, uh, Tito. Tito sorry. sorry. Um, so he, he, Tito presented this image of the sort of amiable father of the nation, the leader of the partisans, and this captured the heart of many in Central and Eastern Europe and frightened to death <coughs> the leaders of the various communist parties. So between 1953 and 56, there was a programme of change. Some of it was real and brought benefits to the working class. But there was continuing instability as the die-hard Stalinists fought the, what we might call the reformists. <coughs> there was continued instability in Poland, in East Germany. In fact, most of the uh, Central and East European Stalinist states, Bulgaria as well, uh, had uh, strike waves, um, peasants occupying the land, protests, demonstrations, etc., etc. So the, the situation between 53 and 56 is one of growing instability with a faction fight between the reformers and the hardliners. Uh, in Hungary, the new regime, with Imre Noj at the head, uh, released political prisoners. This was an important development. A lot of people had been imprisoned, totally unjustly, in the late 40s, early 50s, and sent to various concentration... Well, you can't, can't call them anything but concentration camps. A lot of people died. Uh, a lot of Hungarians were sent to work in the wretched copper mines, um, which was tantamount, con- conditions were so bad it was tantamount, tantamount to a death sentence. Uh, so Nodge made himself immediately popular by releasing political prisoners and putting on trial uh, a number of those who were responsible for the frameworks that put them there in the first place. Uh, his re- he also introduced various reforms, uh, both for the land workers, which was very popular. He disbanded a lot of the collective farms, so-called collective farms, and allowed the peasants to go back to their private holdings and work on them. Uh, uh, These policies were known as the new course and cemented Nodger's popularity with the broad masses in Hungary. But he had to fight all the time against the hardliners. Rakoshi um, was still First Party Secretary, so he's still around, still had an important position. And he and his supporters... Um, tried to make life as difficult as possible for Imre Nodge and used their connections with Moscow to try to get Nodge out. And of course, if you were a Stalinist in Hungary or anywhere else in Eastern Europe, your power often depended on your connections to Moscow. uh, Imre Nodge received important support from a group of journalists. And journalists are very important in... Uh, the early part of the Hungarian Revolution. I don't call it an uprising, I call it a revolution because I think if you use the popular term uprising, it denudes the events of their 
they're central, social and politically important. So I don't use the term uprising, I use the term revolution, which seems absolutely appropriate. Uh, in January 1955, Nodge um, suffered a minor heart attack, which put him out of action for a while, and Rakoshi used this opportunity to uh, call a meeting of the Central Committee, uh, where Nodge was uh, summarily ousted from his position, and the new course reforms were cancelled. People in Hungary from almost every walk of life are absolutely outraged, that the much-loved arsehead was now back in power, and they began to organise. The journalists, again, here were very important. Journalists played a key role, I think, in, in, in a lot of events in Eastern and Central Europe. They weren't all hacks. A lot of the journalists were very intelligent people. They cared about the world around them, and they often felt shackled and restricted by uh, the way that the official Stalinist newspapers operated. As soon as they had the chance, they moved to support Nodge. And so the f what happened was that the figure of Imre Nodge became the central, this was like a central part of the narrative. The, the figure, the body, the persona of Imre Nodge became the centre around which all these battles between 1950 455 and ultimately 56 and then into 57 were fought. Uh, okay, I've said a little bit about Imre Nodge's background, uh, just to say a little bit more, because it is worth stressing that Nodge was a party loyalist of the first stripe, and he initially attempted to curb the enthusiasm of his supporters. There was an infamous leaflet incident. His supporters were putting out a leaflet, slagging off uh, Rakoshi, praising Nodge, and Imre Nodge actually called the leaflets back and pulled them. He was a party loyalist, um, and he never, in, as far as I'm aware, in any sense ever saw himself as a, a, a revolutionary. Um, he was a man who was decent, he was honest, uh, George Lukács, I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Uh, George Lukács regarded him very highly, but at the same time also said, he basically said he never had a political idea in his head. He was just a decent bloke trying to do a good job for the people he represented. This is one of his limitations. He never developed a political organisation. In a sense, he, he, he was thrust into a revolutionary position despite himself. And it was only at the 11th hour that he broke with the constitutionality of the Hungarian Communist Party. So, we have Rakoshi back in power, Nodge marginalised, uh, people are angry, the journalists, the writers' union, students start to organise. Uh, one of the things they do is they organise what's called the Peturfi Circle. Peturfi was a Hungarian revolutionary and poet from 1848 uh, who led the fight, was one of the leaders against the fight against the Austrians. Um, and they, uh, the writers, the students, journalists, organised this discussion circle that they called the Paterfi Circle 
and it grew very rapidly uh, to the point where by early 1956 um, you're talking about meetings of thousands of people there's so many people turning up to hear George Lukacs speak who's been in the who's been in the uh, been out in the cold for years after his scrap with the party leaders in the late 40s he turns up thousands of people come to hear him thousands of people turn up to listen to the widow of Laszlo Reich Laszlo Reich was one of the communist party leaders who was executed in purges in the 1940s and his widow turns up at the Paterfi meeting and says I want the people who killed my husband to be put on trial thunderous response demands for Laszlo Reich's body to be reinterred this is a Hungarian tradition actually digging up dead people and then you rebury them somewhere else it's like a political act in Hungary it's always uh, amused me actually <laughs> and I'm, not, I'm not joking when you want to make a political point in Hungary you dig up a body and you bury it somewhere else with a ceremony <laughs> and this, what's ha- this, this happens to Laszlo Reich and this is despite the fact that Laszlo Reich is a nasty Stalinist himself but the, there's a certain symbolism, there's a certain power in the fact that the authorities, the government, have, have got to admit that they were wrong. And they reluctantly agree to his body being buried in the uh, main cemetery in Hungary, as opposed to being dumped on a cabbage patch, which didn't even have a gravestone on it. So there's a tremendous um, point to be made there. Now, another important event happens. As the tensions increase in '56, uh, students are agitating, journalists uh, are getting kicked off their newspapers, but they immediately move on to another newspaper and start writing their stuff all again. Uh, there were a load of brilliant journalists in the, at this time, and, and particularly one called Miklos Gimesh, who is actually executed along with Imre Nagy in 1957. It becomes a very important figure. Um, we, have a, we tend to have a low opinion of journalists today, and probably with good reason. But the journalists in Hungary in '56 actually were in the front line, and they deserve credit for that. If you ever go to uh, Budapest, go to the journalist club on, on uh, just off Andrashi. They've got a very good restaurant, and they serve excellent wine, but there's also pictures of all these journalists on the wall and paying tribute to them. Um, very important event, the 24th Congress. Khrushchev makes the, the key speech, the crucial speech, saying that, well, actually, you know, we got it wrong, Stalin was a real shit. He wasn't a nice guy at all. He wasn't, you know, something didn't come out of his ass. He was guilty of crimes, endless crimes. Um, the Communist parties around Central and Eastern Europe, Soviet Union and elsewhere, trying to keep it quiet, but it all filters through and is grist to the mill of the opposition to um, Rakoshi. On the 18th of June, um, Julia Reich makes her appeal, and then there's the uh, reinterment of Reich's body, and an enormous number of people, 200,000 people turn up for this reinterment, this second funeral. Rakoshi was furious. He banned the Paterfi Circle and apparently had a list of 400 names of people who were going to be arrested. 
but he was deposed by an intervention from Moscow in mid-July 1956. Again, representing that instability within the Stalinist machine. And he was replaced by uh, a man called Erno Geru, who was uh, as hardline as Stalinist as you can imagine. It was the worst possible choice to make. Erno Geru, if you don't know, uh, you might have heard of the Butcher of Barcelona in the Spanish Civil War. That was Geru. It was probably Geru who recruited Ramon Maqueda, who assassinated Trotsky in Mexico. Probably. I mean, we'll never really know. But he was the head of the secret police during the Spanish Civil War. And, uh, not to put too fine, fine a point on it, a murdering bastard. His party secretary is Janos Kada, another hardline Stalinist, but also a waverer. And he comes into our story later on. Gera's supposed job is to calm things down by making concessions. Um, partly they want him to make concessions because Khrushchev is secretly talking to Tito, trying to tell Tito to shut up. Uh, Tito does not like Geru, and he doesn't want these hardline measures to be reimposed in, the, in, in his next-door neighbour's backyard. There are high-level talks in Moscow... In, in June 1956, um, in which uh, Khrushchev sets out in a letter of 13 July 1956 that Rokoshi is an obstacle uh, to Soviet Tito rapprochement and he's got to be silenced. Hence, they give the job to Geru. But the people's favourite is Nodge and the appointment of Geru just stokes up the fires of uh, rebellion. The Petrific Circle is not banned. They can't ban it. Um, it continues to meet, cont and each time they meet, they have to leave the venue they're in to find a bigger one. And there's a lovely story when, uh, when Luke, George Lukacs was asked to speak. Um, Lukacs turns up puffing away on his cigar. He's quite an old man by now, and there's this packed hall. Nobody can, people can't breathe. So they leave and they walk up the main, one of the main streets in Budapest with this old man in front, puffing away on his cigar, and a procession of something like 15,000 people behind him, trying to look for a place that's big enough for them, for them to have a meeting. So they eventually rig up loudspeakers and manage to get through that. But it's, this is it's like a kettle that's boiling faster and faster and faster. Now, um, we come to a key event. This is the intervention of students. Um, should we put down students? I was a student once. Um, the, the intervention of students sometimes in history can be a key to events. Uh, Paris, 1968. And in Budapest in 1956. And in the provincial university town of Seged, students meet... They scrap the official students' organisation. I've forgotten its initials. It's one of these Stalinist, um, not anagrams, what are they, what's it called when you have a word for an initial? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> one of them. Uh, and they set up their own students' organisation. People are elected for the first time and they have open debates. And 
the students in Seged and then later in Budapest draw up 16 demands. It's sometimes called the 10 demands, uh, but the demands grow as further discussion takes place. And what they call for is reform, elections, uh, some of them call for the introduction of a multi-party system, most importantly of all, in certain terms of its impact on society and on the ruling clique, they call for the withdrawal of Russian troops and withdrawal from the Warsaw Pact. That from now on, Hungary must be an independent nation which decides its relationships with other nation-states around the world, not on its membership of a Stalinist pact, but on the basis of independent nationhood. Laszlo Reich's funeral takes place on well, the the re-funeral takes place on the 6th of October and they are, there's continuing unrest, students are meeting journalists being kicked off papers left, right and centre setting up new papers workers are starting to organise um, there's a there's a common mis misperception in um, histories of 56 that the workers councils only really come into being uh, on the 4th of November not true. The, the first um, workers' council, I've got it down on my little visual aid here. The first workers, uh, first workers' council is organised on the 21st of October, which is actually a couple of days before the balloon goes up. The balloon goes up on the 23rd. Students call for a demonstration in solidarity with Polish uh, demonstrators and strikers and students uh, who are fighting their own battles further north, and they march to the statue of a man called Bem, B-E-M. He is a Polish uh, revolutionary fighter who fought with the Hungarians in 1848, fought with Kossuth and Paterfi against the Austrians, and he's a hero in Hungary, and they call the demonstration in, uh, to march on the Bem statue on the other side of the Danube from the Houses of Parliament. Uh, there's so many people turned up that the roads are completely blocked. Nobody can hear the speeches because there's just so much milling around. Um, how it ever happened, I don't know, and I don't think anybody's ever recorded this, but a section of this large crowd go to Heroes Square where there's a large statue of Stalin, and I'm sure you've all seen these famous pictures where Stalin's statue is pulled down. Uh, another group of demonstrators go to the uh, main radio station in Budapest and they call on the radio staff to um, read out their demands, which are basically the students' demands, slightly shortened. Now, <clears throat> at this point, I'm not going to go into a blow-by-blow-by-blow blow blow account of what happened in Budapest in terms of the street fighting, uh, in terms of... Um, the variations in the Imri Nodge government, because that would take, because in a very short period of time there were three different governments brought in, dissolved, bringing another government. Um, so I'm going to try to keep this short, otherwise we're going to be here all night. Um, so, 23rd of October, you get these huge demonstrations. The statue of Stalin is pulled down, it's dragged through the streets. And for a time, it's used as a urinal. You can see a, you can see a lovely photograph of it. It says WC on the side of his head. 
And um, this is really the, the starting date for the Hungarian Revolution. Uh, <coughs> fighting breaks out. The uh, security forces, who in Hungary were called the AVH at that time, who have a nasty reputation, a uh, very nasty reputation, uh, start to fire, start to fire fire on the crowds that are demonstrating. The workers, uh, students, and other demonstrators, who have access to guns, because the, uh, Hungary, like a lot of Eastern Central European states, had a workers' militia system. So in, in each factory, there was usually a stock of arms, um, small uh, rifles, submachine guns, ammunition. They were able to get their hands on these. So fighting breaks out all over Budapest between the security forces, uh, certain sections of the Hungarian army, and the demonstrators, which are, which are supported sometimes by the police, sometimes by sections of the army, and even sometimes by sections of the AVH. It's a very confused situation, and I suppose in that respect, actually typical of most revolutions. You don't get. I think Le Lenin said, when Lenin wrote somewhere, said, there's never been a revolution yet where a group of people at place A all stand up and say, we support the revolution, and there's a, a, group of, a larger group of people at point B stand up and say, we're against it, and they meet in the middle and have a punch-up. It doesn't work like that. The, the Hungarian revolution for 56, in its confusions and its apparent sort of multiplicity of factions and sides, is actually, I think, very typical of revolutionary experience. Um, right. There's widespread fighting around the country, not just in Budapest. Most of the accounts concentrate on Budapest, but there's fighting everywhere. Um, and uh, Nodge forms, he, he, on the 27th of October, Imre Nodge announces a new government. He kicks out the Stalinists, uh, introduces people who he, think, he thinks are more acceptable. And uh, on... By the 3rd of November, we've got to the 3rd Nodge government. He's making changes all the time. And at this point, on the 3rd of November, he also, they also bring in the reformed parties, political parties, that existed prior to 1948. So the, uh, the, the Peasants' Party, small, the Smallholders' Party, uh, the National Peasants' Party of Ishvan Bibo, uh, which is got now called the Paterfi Party, and importantly the Social Democrats, who are led by a, a woman who I, I think deserves a bit more known about her, called Anna Kately. Um, by this time, the official Stalinists are in hiding almost. Kada is trying to form an opposition. He retreats to a town in the... Uh, East of Hungary called Solnok, and he announces the formation of a workers and peasants government, which has got absolutely no support whatsoever except amongst the bureaucracy. Nobody takes much notice of it. On the 4th of November itself, after a decision that they took secretly, uh, the Soviet Union send in troops and tanks to crush the revolution. It's worth pointing out that the Soviet Union actually used more tanks in the suppression of the workers' revolution in Hungary than the Nazis used in the invasion of France in 1940. That's the scale of what we are talking about. 
And I remember talking to some veterans of 56 at the BBC when I was asked to talk about 56 in cinema. And um, these two old blogs said, we were, we had our rifles and we'd set up our position uh, at the end of Andrashiyut, which is a big boulevard at least out of central uh, Budapest. And they said they looked down the street and all they could see was tanks. Row after row after row after row. Tanks. And not the crappy tin cans that they, the Russian army used before, but the brand new ones that had succeeded to T-34, which had sort of steel plate that thick. And you can't use a Molotov cocktail against them. You are helpless. And this fellow said to me, I knew then we'd lost. But they carry on fighting. Fighting goes on for... Uh, several days um, the workers are now armed and they're fighting they, uh, they're not just sitting in the factories they're out on the streets helping with the defence of Budapest they're organising food supplies they're doing everything that you'd expect workers councils to do they're basically taking over society or they organise the post they've taken over the radios, radio stations the newspapers and they take over the factories, kicked out the management, elected uh, lead their own leaders, etc., etc. Now, the massive Soviet offensive wins eventually. There's bitter fighting. Uh, 2,300 people killed, something like that. And Imre Noj and his, what I suppose, suppose you would call the provisional government, um, ask for a political asylum in the Yugoslav embassy. Which, uh, I presume the Yugoslav embassy staff got onto Tito, and he agrees, and Imre Noj and his allies are holed up in the uh, Yugoslav embassy, uh, thinking they're safe, at least for the time being. The Soviet Union had a secret meeting with Tito, and what follows is a fairly typical nasty trick. They say to Imre Nodge inside the embassy, we'll, okay, you can go home. So Nodge, his wife, and all his cabinet ministers, including Lukács, uh, and their families, parade out of the embassy. And the Soviet troops say, please step on this coach, we're going to take you home. They take them to Budapest Airport and they fly them to um, Romania, where they're held prisoners. Ironically, ironically, in a holiday camp, in a Romanian Communist Party holiday camp called Snagov, they're held prisoner. So, from this point on, the workers' councils really take on their role as the primary opposition to the government and to the uh, Soviet Union to the Soviet troops. With the Soviet intervention of, of the 4th of November, the working class, the workers' councils, really come into their own, and they immediately, immediately call a general strike, which is absolutely total. Not just in Budapest, but throughout the country. Every single factory, shop, bus, train, is closed down. It's, it's, as I said before, I think it's probably the most effective general strike in the whole history of the working class. Nothing moves... Every tiny village, every hamlet, every city, every factory, every depot, train station, completely dead. 
Um, this strike lasts over a month. In the weeks following the 4th of November, the workers in Budapest and the provinces build up an inf- a r- impressive revolutionary structure of workers' councils. Um, and when Soviet troops try to intervene, the workers' council and the workers in the factories who have armed themselves fight back. And uh, the, the main industrial centre in Budapest, which is called Chapel Island, consists of a large number of iron and steel factories and other things. Um, there's fighting, really intense fighting goes on until November the 11th when finally uh, the workers are militarily subdued but they still occupy the factories and they are still on strike the workers refuse to return to work and as I said before um, the the effect of the strike and the factory occupation is absolutely, absolutely total uh, Bill Lomax in his book A Hungry in 1956 has this, has this to say In slight contrast to the factory workers councils whose major task had been to take over the management of their enterprises district works, workers council district workers councils were set up and they were from the start essentially political organs so we're moving from uh, a situation where the workers are controlling the factories and they're now moving to a to extend their control to other elements of society. They saw their role as to defend what they could of the achievements of the revolution and to represent the interests of the workers in dealing with the Kadar regime and the Soviet military (coughs) authorities. But there was a common demand unifying the two, and this was that factories should be the common property of those who worked in them, that production should be managed by the democratically elected organs of the workers themselves by the workers' council. So this is the situation that prevails into November and December with the workers sitting in the factories, controlling them, preventing Soviet troops from entering and negotiating, trying to negotiate with the Kadar government which is now established. Um, they have meetings with the Kadar government. Uh, Kadar wants, Kadar at first, he's all over the place, he's panicking. He's, he's confronted with a situation not so much of dual power but dual power in the sense that he hasn't got very much at all and everything rests with the workers um, he says I'll, I'll, see, I'll concede to your demands but let's sit down and talk about them and we have to do this in a measured sort of way the workers council basically turned to bust Meg which was Hungarian for fuck off and um, they continue with the strike. Uh, they've now formed workers' councils in individual factories. A district, district workers' councils are set up all over the country, and there are now moves to set up a national workers', workers council. Um, I'll be in another couple of minutes. Is that okay? That's fine. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they attempt to have their first meeting on the 21st of November. Either by error or an act of generosity, they actually invite a representative uh, from the Soviet army to attend. And the Soviet army does attend, but represented by 200 tanks that surround the sports stadium where the meeting, where the National Workers' Council is supposed to be set up. And 
Um, the workers try hastily to organise another meeting. But in a sense, this is the turnaround here. Um, the, uh, the, the authorities now start to arrest the leaders of the workers' councils, particularly the district workers' councils. They prevent any further attempt to set up a, a national workers' council. Uh, the workers attempt to publish their own newspaper, which they call Workers' News, and the, uh, the AVH, the Soviet Red Army, actually go into the place where the printing machine is and smash it up. At the same time, they also confiscate all the duplicators that they can find anywhere in Budapest to pre even prevent them just putting out a mimicraft um, bulletin. Kardar's tactics all along the way have been to make concessions and take them back. Make concessions, take them back. And eventually, um, in, on the 9th of December, attempts to set up a national structure, again, of the uh, district councils, are thwarted by, this time, mass arrest. Hundreds of workers are arrested. New legislation is introduced. It becomes a crime to give out a leaflet. To engage in a strike action carries the death penalty now. And this um, means that by January, the workers are still in the factories, but the, the, the situation is coming to an end now. People uh, start to trickle back to work. On the 8th of January, the, the Workers' Council of the Chapel Iron and Steelworks, the biggest steelworks in Hungary, announces its resignation and uh, on the 15th of January, the Central Workers' Council of Budapest also announces its resignation. The Hungarian Revolution is over. Very, very briefly now. I want to go another two minutes, okay? Yeah. The news of this, of these cataclysmic events, echo around the world. The communist parties around the world, many of them are absolutely devastated. Um, you probably all know that this split communist parties around the world. In this country, the historian E.P. Thompson, for example, left the British Communist Party, as did a number of others. Uh, the Danish Communist Party split in two. Um, as uh, the German Communist Party loses hundreds of members over this. The Italian Communist Party loses uh, members like Ernesto Coletti and people like this. Lucio Coletti, sorry. Etc., uh, etc. Et the only place where it seems that the Communist Party held, holds on to its membership is in France. And why that is, I, I really don't know. But it has a devastating effect on the Communist parties around the world who refuse to recognise the reality of what's happened, who refuse to recognise the reality of working class power when it stares them in the face, and they denounce the revolution as uh, inspired by foreign agents and counter revolutionary fascists. And that's been the official account of what happened in Hungary in 1956 from the Communist Party for years. I don't know what they say about it nowadays. If anybody's got any information on that, let me know, please. Um, very, very briefly, um, in Hungary itself, 1956, as the years pass, gets marginalised. Kada introduces a lot of reforms, a lot of sweeteners. Uh, he makes work more stable, he, he improves housing, consumer goods appear in the shop. He, he even makes a big show about allowing passports, though in actual fact it's a bit of a sham. Um, and over the years, uh, 
Hungary 56 tends to get sidelined. Partly this is due to the fact that what Marxist, what real Marxist influence there is left in Hungary, um, people like um, Agnes Heller, Ferenc Feher, they're sacked from their jobs. Uh, Ishvan Mazaros, uh, Lukács' most promising student, leaves in 56 and ends up at Surrey University. Um, and um, Lukács dies in 71. And there's a sense in which Marxism dies in Hungary, and with it, I'm not saying the two things are closely connected, but with it, uh, the memory of 56 dies. Come Orban, we have this Kulturkampf, this sort of attempt to obliterate any sort of working class radical history in Hungary, and um, he's just removed the statue of Imre Nagy from outside. <laughs> Shut up. Is they, they, they've moved the statue of Imre Nodge from the place where it used to, so just outside the Palace, to a more obscure position, 300 yards away. Um, the uh, 1956 uh, organiser, historical organisation has been disbanded and incorporated, I think I mentioned this earlier, into this nationalistic, Christian national historical association called Veritas, which basically pushes Orban's line. And if you look on it, you can actually look on a lot of websites now in, in Hungary, and the revolution is referred to as the Jewish counter-revolution. Yeah. yeah, there's quite a bit of that now. Um, so, this leaves us with a job, I think, and the job is that we must not let uh, the memory of 56 die. We must in our battle against the Stalinists and against people who simply don't care about these sort of things, we must continue to press the argument that, first of all, Hungary 56 was a workers' revolution. It was a socialist revolution. No one on the Workers' Council, and I'll challenge anybody, find me a quote from any of the leaders of the Workers' Council movement that says they wanted to restore capitalism. You can't find it. In fact, on the contrary, they say time and time and time again, we do not want to return to capitalism, we want democratic socialism. And that cry for democratic socialism is our cry. So, 56 belongs to us. Thank you. <laughs>